0: In this God and Sexuality series, we seek to explore the intent of God's design in this wonderful gift of life and sexuality, knowing that the ways of God in all things lead to flourishing, life, joy, and healing. In a time of Tinder, hookup culture, porn, gender fluidity, same-sex attraction, HBO, and the politicization of sex and all the gender debates, there are numerous voices clamoring to be heard on these topics. But at a deeper and more personal level, we know that our sexuality has incredible power to form us, power to bring health and flourishing, or pain and destruction. We are not looking to pick a fight with anyone, but rather show that any difference we may have most probably doesn't start with our beliefs on sexuality, but rather our beliefs on God and His intent and design for this world and its people. We want to create a place for all people to bring their whole lives, including their sexuality to Jesus, and let him do the restoring work he needs to do. Now we will listen to the next installment of the God and Sexuality series.
1: Good morning, everyone. Just on that kids thing, uh... I often preach to my family before I get to preaching to this community. And yesterday, my 10-year-old son at the second mention of sex ran out the room and uh, just decided he was going to go and be in the playroom, right, for the rest of the time. My daughter came to me afterwards. She says, it's almost like you enjoy saying that word sex, Dad. You said it so many times in that sermon. I've thought of all of these edgy ways that I could introduce today because we're gonna be talking about sex and sexuality for six weeks. And then I reminded myself how distractible this community is, right? And I want you guys to be focused on me. So I don't wanna put any pictures in your head that would distract you. One of our deacons actually said to me on Monday night when we were here at Core Leaders that even the fact that we've broken sexuality up like that is a little distracting to him. He was saying it tongue in cheek. But if that's the level of distractibility, that we're dealing with here. I'm gonna just get straight stuck into what we're speaking about and no edgy or controversial intros, right? But I do wanna quickly start by expressing just something of my pastoral kind of anticipation and actually, to be honest, joy that we are getting to this conversation. Some people might be feeling like, man, are we really having this conversation in church? What are we gonna say? Ah, And I can understand that. But to be honest, as I stand here today, there is nothing but a sense of God, thank you that we get into this conversation. I genuinely believe with all of my heart that this is gonna do your people good that this is gonna be a great series for us to get into your will and your purpose and we're gonna see people set free and we're gonna see people living in the light and walking in greater freedom and I'm so excited about that, right? Because as I've spoken to so many of our people over the last weeks and months and even years, there are so many people, parents, that are looking for answers and helping their children on matters of gender, And individuals that are trying to reconcile their personal grapples with matters of sexual orientation and practice with the scriptures that they read in their Bibles. And students are frustrated and, to be honest, often fearful around the mocking and vitriol and cancel culture that they are facing on campus for holding to an orthodox Christian point of view on sex and relationships. And many people at work are feeling the pressure on them and they're seeking wisdom and counsel for how to navigate this kind of forced celebration of Pride Month and being forced to wear T-shirts, rainbow T-shirts at school or at work and, and banners on their emailers. And they're saying, hey, I need wisdom and how do I navigate this tricky territory? And what does it look like to live Christianly in these moments if I don't find myself in agreement? Unfortunately, one of the saddest things for me personally to observe is how many people are suffering in real silence and often in great isolation as they find themselves apprehensive, feeling apprehensive about speaking to others about their secret sins and their addictions and their lusts and their orientations. This is marrieds and singles Right here in our community. Because these matters, every single one of these matters of sexuality, they touch at a, a very deep place in our souls, right? Loneliness, body image, lust, desire, aging, wounds, trust issues. And as I speak to these people, one of the things that becomes so very clear to me is that we're all dealing with areas of brokenness in our sexuality. And, and that makes complete sense because none of us is perfect. So none of us should expect to be perfect in the area of our sexuality either. But here's the second thing that happens immediately in my heart. Immediately, just this truth jumps to the fore for me that God has the answers for us. God has the answers for us. And as with everything else, we can come to Him and we can trust Him and we can trust His word. This whole series is rooted in God's design and a confidence that God's ways ultimately lead to life. That's what we believe. And if we believe this, we should experience a a faith-filled anticipation rising up in us that we are going to be well-served in these coming weeks in this sexuality journey as Ian so powerfully reminded us last week, right? Jesus made the huge truth claim that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we believe that with all of who we are, we fully believe that He has a a way for us to walk in. He has a truth for us to subscribe to and live by, and He has an abundance of life for all of us to experience. And as He makes that truth claim, He doesn't do so exclusively. He does that with an invitation for us to come to Him. Let me share a few other reasons why I get so excited about this and why I feel like this is going to be good for us as a community. Firstly, this conversation is everywhere, right? It's everywhere. Sexuality is one of the biggest topics in media and online, in our education institution, in our schools, and in sport today, and even in the workplace. It's, it's everywhere. This is a conversation that's every, that everyone's having, and it's a conversation that we as Christ followers need to join in on. A second reality is that it can be confusing. It can be confusing, the, many of these conversations. And we, we therefore need to be informed as Christ follows and gain biblical clarity on these matters. The sexuality landscape is changing so quickly in the world that sometimes it can be hard for us to keep up and use the correct terms for everything, never mind gain clarity and understanding and, in a sense, take a perspective on these things, right? We as Christians, along with many others in the world, we can often find ourselves a little stuck, not knowing what to say, not what not to say. Maybe not knowing what to believe and what not to believe about these matters, when to take a stand for what we believe in and when to just rush in with grace and embrace. So it's our our aim to help you and provide some greater insight and understanding about where, where the conversations are at and what we as Orthodox Christians, and I don't mean Greek, or, Roman, um, Greek or, or Russian Orthodox here, I'm talking about we, those who subscribe to the traditional view held by the church throughout the ages handed down to us, what is the Christian perspective on these matters? And lastly, I think this conversation is really important as a pastor because we wanna pastor our people well. We want to pass our people Well, there's so much pain and hurt and dysfunction and guilt and shame and regret and anger and fear and insecurity because of sex and sexuality matters gone wrong in our lives. See, in contrast to a whole bunch of people in the world who would just want to say, ah, oh, what's the big deal? It's just sex. As long as you're not kind of violent or hurting anyone, what, what's wrong with that? It's not hurting anyone. To, to contrast that, I wanna say, I think I can confidently say we've all been hurt by sex. Who hasn't been hurt by the implications of sex, either personally or secondhand, right? Adultery, divorce, sex addiction, body image insecurities, pornography, suicide. Almost all of us can speak of hurt in one of these areas caused in our life or in the life of others around us, dear to us. And there is so much pain being experienced in the area of sexual orientation and gender identity. And it's, it's not just out there. It's in here in our community. And to be honest, it breaks my heart. These are such weighty matters for those who are facing them. And yet, it's so often a lonely place for so many. And so, we believe that we are called as God's family to to be a people who, who come around more equipped and more ready to walk with these people that are facing these challenges. That's what God calls us to. But there are also so many lies being promoted as truth in our world today. And my heart breaks because of the pain that these lies are causing. And we want to be a place where God's truth, God's truth can be represented in grace and with compassion as a countervoice and hopefully a helpful life-giving alternative option to the many theories that are being promoted as truth today, many of which have not even had a generation of observance to test their validity. Let me just pause here for a moment and I want to speak to a few groups of people specifically as we kind of get going in this series. First, if you are grappling with matters of sexuality personally in any way, can I just reassure you that you are not alone? This is one of the lies that the devil would have you believe that you are alone and that you have no one to turn to. This is a community that is called to represent the love of Jesus to you, which means we're a community of both grace and truth, just like Jesus was. And it means that, that we are gonna represent love to you. Love uh, is, is, uh, without grace is not love, right? But love also without truth is not love. And so we wanna represent Jesus with love and grace to you. And if you're open to receiving both the grace and the truth of Jesus, we believe we're a community that can walk with you and do you good. And so we want to reassure you that you are not alone. Secondly, if you would not consider yourself a Christ follower and you've joined us here this morning, we want to say welcome. And we're delighted that you're with us and we would love for you to come along on this journey. If you want to journey with us in finding out what the Bible has to say about these important matters and and what we Christians believe and why we believe it, we want to say come, come along for the journey over these six weeks. We may not always have the answers that everyone wants to hear. We're not trying to win any popularity contests here, but we are saying, and we're also not saying that everyone has to agree with us, but we are saying that we do have really solid answers for why we believe what we believe. And we have a confidence in those, and we would love the opportunity to share the convictions that we hold with you and where we're getting these convictions from and make that known. So we trust that if that's you in the room today, that you can feel welcome to journey with us. Lastly, let me say this to all of us. Like I said just now, we are all sexual beings. And as I've said, we all know that we have areas of our lives that need to be more formed and transformed into the likeness of Jesus. So I want to encourage us as we go on this journey to have a posture where we find ourselves. Yes, we're going to look at what's happening out there and we're going to deal with some of that. We're going to speak to some of that. But my invitation to you is have a posture of coming on this journey with a deep desire for God to do deep work in here for every single one of us. As I've done preparation over the the last time, I have felt God doing fresh work in me in areas of brokenness in my own sexuality. And I wanna invite you into that journey. We have come to this place and we wanna journey together. But primarily, we want to say, God, give us wisdom for how we navigate out there, but do the work in here. Start with me, Lord. Let's allow Him to work in us and transform us and lead us and guide us into more of the way, the truth, and the life that is found in Him alone. Can we pray together? And then we're going to get stuck in. Heavenly Father, we do this morning want to invite you to do your work in us. We ask, God, that you would give us eyes to see. We ask, God, that you would give us understanding, that we would gain your heart on these matters. God, we look to you as the one who has the very words of life. We look to you as the way, the truth, and the life. And we choose to place our confidence in you again today. Lead us in this time, we pray. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen. I also want to just right at the outset uh, thank a number of people, John Marcoma, John Tyson, Andrew Wilson, Sam Albury. These are all people that we are learning from and listening to. Many of them have gone ahead of us, and we can glean from them. They're writing great things. They've done great podcasts. And, and in many ways, as we've been preparing, we've been learning from those, uh, those people, and they have gone ahead of us. So we want to acknowledge that many of what, much of what we've learned comes from others. Now today, today we specifically speaking and looking at God and sexuality. God and sexuality, the vital reality that as Christ followers, we take our cues from God on all matters but specifically today, we're looking at taking our cue from God on matters of sexuality. And, and last week, in was so helpful to us. If you didn't listen to last week's worldview sermon, I really want to encourage you to go back and to listen to that online because he laid a foundation upon which we're building today and for the rest of the series. But he helped us to understand that, that how we approach all subjects as Christians. And I, I loved his his analogy, if we can put up the picture of the of, of the puzzle box, right? For us as Christians, what happens is, is we get thrown all these different puzzle pieces in life. And, and, and the difference between a Christian and a person who's got a different religious understanding or worldview is that we are, in a sense, taking these issues, these puzzle pieces of life that are thrown at us, and we're going, where does this, where does this fit? And for the Christ follower, we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, it's you, it's your way, your truth and your life. That's the puzzle box picture that we are orientating the fullness of our lives and all of our understanding in light of. And the reality is that not everybody is holding up their puzzle pieces according to that puzzle box. But for us as Christ followers, that is our worldview. Jesus, the way, truth, and life is the puzzle box picture that we are choosing to live in light of. And we want to position each puzzle piece, each issue and matter that is thrown at us as Christ followers in view of that puzzle box picture. We believe Jesus is the starting point of every convert conversation and and everything else flows from there, right? So here's the big idea. I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to put it on the screen. The big idea for us with God and sexuality, right? As Christ followers, we believe that God has has a design and intent behind the things He has given us. We cannot disconnect our sexuality from this belief. Our culture has tried with the sexual revolution. This generation is living in the pain of this. There are two stories being told about sex and sexuality. One of them starts with God and leads to life. The other starts with excluding God and in many ways is leading to death. These are huge claims that we are, but I I stand by them. I stand by them. I I really believe that, that this is true. And we're going to spend some time unpacking these assertions, right? Let's turn to Matthew uh, chapter 19. We're going to look at the first six verses of the scripture. And I didn't realize I need a tissue that I was going to get teary during a sexuality talk. But Matthew 19, and let's see, and let's learn from Jesus, right? And let's see how he handles a sexuality matter that's brought to him. Let's look at his responses. Let's learn and take our cues from that. Verse one, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he's been talking, he went away from Galilee and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And then the Pharisees, they came up to him and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, just so you have some context for the Pharisees, these are the haters, right, of Jesus' time and and they are trying to trick him. They're trying to catch him off guard. They're looking to trap him and shame him and expose him and hopefully do away with him. And, And the reality is I don't think that that's too dissimilar to how many are having the conversation approaching these subjects today with shame and hate and cancel culture tactics being liberally used rather than creating room for great and genuine conversation, right? And discussion. How does Jesus respond? Verse four, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they no longer are two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I think Jesus' response here in these verses is very directive and instructive to us as his followers. As as we look to imitate him and to follow him and to be Christians, little Christs. See, Jesus responds by appealing to three really important things. Firstly, he appeals to the scriptures. Have you not read? Jesus, the God-man himself, draws his confidence... And his conclusion from the word, from God's word, from his word. And he points them there as the source of their answer. Secondly, he appeals to God's design in creation. Jesus quotes from Genesis first book of the Bible, and he grounds his understanding in the way that God has created things to be. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. He appeals not just to the scriptures, he also appeals to God's created order and God's design, and he holds to that for answers. Thirdly, he appeals to human submission, To God's authority. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Do we see it? Jesus says that when it's something that God has done, then it's not something that we should feel the freedom to undo. That's what Jesus is saying. So, so Jesus himself, when he's faced with a sexuality matter, he appeals to the scriptures, he appeals to God's created order and design, and he appeals to human submission to God's authority. Those are three very directive things for us. And it's, it's vitally important for us to recognize Jesus' approach here in, in, in this kind of God and sexuality conversation. Simply put, when we have a God-informed worldview and we have sexuality conversations, we as Christ followers need to stand with Jesus, saying the scriptures are our foundation and our God. God is created and he has done so with order and design. And it's now for us as his followers to submit and align to him, to his authority and to his order. Does that make sense? When it comes to our sexuality, we believe that God has created it, that God has a plan for it. And because of that, we have to be wise with it and submit it to him as God in our lives. We don't say, hey, God, be God of my life on Sunday mornings for the 90 minutes that I go to church. We say, God, be God of my life in every single area, every single area, including my sexuality. This is our starting points. God, God, and sexuality as a sermon title and a series title is with purpose. We're saying, how do we bring God into our sexuality? This is how we do it, right? I wanna pause here for a moment and not move on too quickly. I wanna speak to two big lies that I think have kind of crept their way into the context of the church, even into the context of many people who genuinely want to follow God's word and want to follow God. But these two lies seem to creep in a little bit and we somehow subtly come to believe them. The first big lie is this, that God's word doesn't really understand our culture and our times. You may have heard some Christians saying things like, but the Bible was written in a different time or surely we have to decide how we apply this more to a modern sexual ethic. To which I would just wanna say these words simply, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. Jesus quotes from Genesis, written 1,500 years before his time and and he looks at it as the authoritative word and instruction of God even for his moment in time. He looks at the word and he says, no, that word had us in mind and I'm taking my stand upon it. We look at Jesus when we wanna subtly kind of go, oh, maybe God's word doesn't understand our culture or our times. Jesus has full confidence in God's word and in God's design and so should we. A second lie that sometimes subtly we believe is this, that God doesn't understand who I am and what I feel. This is This is real. This is pastorally real in conversations that I've had. And in many ways, both of these, uh, both of these lies actually echo the lies of the first lies of Eden that cause us to to doubt God. And to help us counter this lie about God not understanding who I am and what I feel, I want to offer three lines of thought. Two of them are a bit softer, the third is a little harder hitting. The first one is this: firstly, I have to point out that as we scan through the scriptures, it becomes incredibly clear that God is a God of compassion and care and concern for his people. And even even the fact that Jesus is there having this conversation in this moment, the incarnate God-man himself squeezed into human form to come and show his created ones what life looks like and then to provide eternal life for them, life to the full. Even that is a great miracle. And we we look at the scriptures and we see his compassion to his people, but we look to Jesus and we look to the cross and we see the ultimate display of his compassion and his care and his concern. We need not doubt whether God is concerned for us. Jesus has displayed the ultimate concern and we actually see a character of concern throughout the scriptures. Secondly, when we come to this place of maybe doubting, uh, doubting because God understand who I am and what I feel, I think we must acknowledge that if we truly believe that God is God, then we should be able to know with confidence that He knows us because He is an all-knowing God. And often the question behind that is, is God actually God? But if He is God, then we can with confidence know that He knows all things. And so he deeply knows the very innermost of who we are. We need not doubt whether he knows. Here's a third answer though. And like I said, this one is a bit stronger, a bit more harder hitting. And it comes from the third point that Jesus makes in this passage of scripture about human submission to God's authority. And that is that when it comes to our feelings, ultimately we have to decide if we believe that our feelings or God are going to rule and ultimately dictate our lives. And as we do this, I think we must recognize the danger of our our moment and our time in history, where feelings have been so elevated to a place of prominence in in our worlds and in our lives. Carl Truman, in his brilliant book, I've quoted it before, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he says that feelings in the modern era have become elevated as so, I'm summarizing the gist of what he said, elevated so to such a place of being supreme that they have made it to the place of replacing God as God in our lives, where everyone is seeing feelings as being ultimate and prominent. And I'm not trying to be harsh or insensitive here at this point, but I do wanna make sure that even here in the Christian community that we recognize when we say we subscribe to a Christian worldview, I don't want us to fall into these traps, these lies that just because we feel a certain way, that is the ultimate truth. That is not true. We can believe with full confidence that God knows us and our time in history and, and that God understands both. And that everything that we are going through, in everything, He loves us completely. And that His Word is relevant to our lives. We can believe it. And, and I want to encourage us. Can I encourage us as we look into our lives? Can we look at ourselves And then find ourselves questioning the scripture? Let's not do that. Let's not look at ourselves and then question the scriptures. Let's be a people that, like Jesus, look at our scripture and then question ourselves, fickle beings that we are. And as we look, not just in, but as we look out, can I encourage us? Let's not look at culture and say, hey, this is what's happening in culture. Let's question the scriptures. Let's, like Jesus, be a people who look at our scriptures and then find ourselves questioning our culture, fickle culture that it is. These are true. We are fickle, and so is our culture, right? These are the crux issues for us as Christ followers as we get to these matters of God and sexuality. And unfortunately, all too often, even in the context of the church, I think we've been more concerned about what people will say about our beliefs then we have been concerned about what God has to say about these matters and the promises that He has around being the way, truth, and life, even in these things. We cannot overly concern ourselves with the opinion of others. Our primary concern is with the opinion of God, and we submit ourselves to that just like Jesus encourages us, right? Now, We've laid a bit of a foundation and I wanna take the rest of the time that I have to to, with you this morning to contrast the Christian worldview with most probably the other most prominent worldview in our world today, secular humanism. It's likely the most prevalent worldview in our non Christian family members and colleagues and friends and, and others around us today. It's, it's, a, it's a worldview that many subscribe to secular meaning without God and humanism meaning with mankind at the center. This is a worldview where God is taken out of the God and sexuality sentence and you as human society are just left to define sexuality for ourselves, right? That's secular. That would be the Christian. Worldview, God and sexuality. Secular humanism is just sexuality. We remove God from the conversation. And frankly put, here's the secular humanist worldview on sexuality. Human beings, okay, remove God. Human beings are just animals. There's no meaning or purpose to our lives. Our bodies are just meat. We have no soul or deeper dynamic going on. Gender is a social construct. There's no plan for our sexuality other than the propagation of the species. There's no reason to be cautious about our expressions of our sexuality other than as long as we obviously don't hurt others. Sex is just play for grown-ups. Love is just a feeling of happiness you get from being with another person. Marriage, again, is a social construct. Divorce is divorce, 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 It's nothing, as Gwyneth Paltrow called it, a conscious uncoupling. This is the story that underpins the world that we live in. The view of so many in the movies we watch and the articles we read and the posts that pop up on our feeds. This is the cultural water that we're all swimming in. And when we look back at it, it's actually only in the, the last 60 years that the secular humanist worldview has become predominant and, and, and prolific in our worlds. And at no point ever in human history has our world changed more. Obviously in the areas of technology and the information age, but also never ever in the history of the world have things changed more in the area than in the area of sexuality. Sexuality has radically changed in the last 60 years, but the big question we have to ask is where is the secular humanist line of thinking taking things in our worlds? So what I want to do is I want to draw attention to five disconnections that have come about in our world related to sex in the last 60 years alone, largely driven forward by secular humanism. And then what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna point out some of the natural consequences that we're seeing in our world today from these shifts and these disconnections that are taking place. And it's, it's not just us as Christians that are seeing this. I, I must say at the front end, there are a number of others, uh, social commentators and others that are going, these shifts have happened. These shifts are not helping us. These shifts are hurting us. And so I'm not just representing a Christian perspective on these shifts and changes. This is a growing perspective in the world. But here's the first disconnection that happened, right? As kind of people became more inclined to a secular humanist worldview, remove God from the conversation, let's figure it out for ourselves. In the 60s, sex became disconnected from responsibility for the first time. In the 1960s, the introduction of contraceptives removed the primary responsibility historically related to sex, to which all of us married people say, yeah, we can now have sex without the danger of having more children, right? Contraceptives have introduced the possibility of that. But for everyone else, very quickly, the primary purpose of sex changed and it became pleasure, It became pleasure with no responsibility. And the result of this disconnection from responsibility, well, we see that. We just look back over the last 60 years and and we see the sexual revolution getting fully underway in the 60s and the 70s, free love and all the rest. We know how that goes, right? And then the legalization of abortion later catalyzes this sex without responsibility even more in places in our worlds. And unfortunately here in Africa, we've seen a very negative consequence of free sex, right? The HIV AIDS crisis in our world, the statistics around fatherlessness, the reality that there are three times more teenage mothers in South Africa in our communities than there are in the average first world country. Three times second big disconnect that happened in our world propelled by secular humanism is sex has become disconnected from marriage. Sex has become disconnected from marriage. It's been decoupled and separated from any long-term commitment to another person. And this has caused a massive rise in divorce, which has in turn created an anxiety for many young adults around deep soul connections. And studies show us the devastation's of these realities, loneliness, attachment issues, a general delay in getting married with ramifications on having children and family. There is great statistics to show us the shifts and changes since we decoupled uh, a commitment to single relationships in marriage. We see these these statistics and divorce begets divorce. Women from divorced homes are 69% more likely to divorce in their own lives. And men from divorced homes are 189% more likely to get divorced. Obviously fatherlessness is another prolific consequence of this with only half of the children here in the Western Cape growing up with a mother and father in their home. And I know there's a number of other reasons that would contribute to that. These are all consequences of the disconnection between sex and marriage. A third shift that's taken place in the last 60 years, kind of propelled forward by a secular humanist worldview of sex, has been disconnected from male-female relationships. And we're actually not going to speak about this today because we've got a whole Wednesday night and Sunday where we're going to be speaking to this topic specifically. But it's a huge shift that's happened in our worlds in the last many years. A fourth big change driven forward by secular humanism is this. For some, sex has been disconnected from love and relationship and emotional connection of any kind. With the introduction of Tinder and hookup culture, you can order sex in just as easily as you can order an Uber. It's not prostitution. It's by mutual consent. Both parties are bought in. Sex is now a recreational activity which has largely become devoid of any deeper meaning, of pu- meaning or purpose. And this is being pushed and this is being promoted as the prevailing way for us to view sex. Here's a social experiment for you. I want you, as you watch Netflix and any movies over the next few weeks, I want you to see, can you identify any points in time where someone tries to subtly or not so subtly get the message across to you that it's just sex, it's no big deal. Just look out for that. It's just sex, it's no big deal. Since I started doing this in the last few weeks, it is everywhere. In almost every single series and movie that I've watched in the last few weeks, that message comes through somewhere. It's just sex, it's no big deal. But what are the consequences of hookup culture? Donna Fritas, she's written a book called The End of Sex. And she speaks about how hookup culture is leaving a generation unhappy, sexually unfulfilled, and confused about intimacy. Hookup culture is not working. Here's the fifth and last movement of disconnection I wanna draw attention to. And in many ways, it's still coming, this one, but it is also in other ways already here. Sex is becoming disconnected from actual people. Sounds crazy, right? Sex without people. But it's here already. The introduction of, of, of the internet has provided the possibility of easy access pornography, which is highly addictive in nature, but completely An unreality right and then texting and sexting and smartphones mean that more and more young people these days are inept in their ability to relate relationally and physically with others all this means that contrary to popular estimation people are actually having less sex than they were 20 years ago I couldn't believe it at first Washington Post says the number of Americans aged 18 to 29 reporting no sex, no sex in the past year has more than doubled between 2008 and 2018 as kind of all of the other things have come online more and more. So that's where we are, right? But where, but where are we going? Let's pause and think for a moment. What does this lead to? This remove God, figure it out for yourself approach. What does it lead to? Cue the sex robots. They exist. Just like in the movie Her with Jacqueline Phoenix, I can't recommend it, it's a bit dark and weird. What about sex in the metaverse? Virtual reality six. Let me tell you right now, no doubt to be marketed to us as more hygienic and more responsible and more considerate and reducing GBV and more convenient. And those are all the marketing ploys. It's coming, people. Sex in the Metaverse. Somewhat in disbelief this week, I watched a 10 minute documentary, a short film called 2D Love, which shows how people are creating their perfect anime character and partner in virtual reality and even getting married to a 2D anime character. In this documentary, the guy who's got the waifu, that's what you call your kind of anime wife. He's got a waifu and, and he says this, very telling words. He says, we all strive towards our own personal heaven and perfect place. And the only way we find this is to create it digitally. Think about the developments in AI and how these are gonna affect our world. You can only imagine how intuitive and clever the tech companies are gonna make these things, right? And you've gotta wonder, will a real partner ever be able to live up to your Stedford wife or your Stedford husband? This is where the world is going. Apparently, the new sex robots even allow the user to program the robot to behave how you would like it to. I thought it wiser not to go and research this part so I don't have more to say on this, right? But David Levy, he's a, he's a writer, he is convinced that's, that marriage to robots will be legal by 2050. And he says to homosexual marriage, he argues seemed craziness less than 50 years ago, but it's become, as it's become more Common, our attitudes have changed and society has not just accepted it, but come to celebrate it. And he suggests that the same will happen by robots. Again, what are the consequences? Removing God, promoting a let's figure it out for ourselves" kind of approach. Well, in Japan and South Korea, some of the contexts that are most pushing on the technology side, we've already seen the devastations of loner culture and suicide going up substantially and the breakdown of the family units. And these realities are catching on elsewhere. See, I think we need to think for just a moment how just these five disconnections in the realm of sex in the last 60 years have shaped and will continue to shape the landscape of our worlds. And likely what's most concerning to me as a pastor and a leader and as a parent is more and more these shifts are being pitched to us and they're being positioned to us as moral progress and the liberation from oppression by secular humanists. This is what freedom looks like but it doesn't look too free to me. Anyone who holds a more conservative view is often labeled as archaic or evil or repressive and in need of rebuke from society. And that grieves me, right? Removing God from sex and disconnecting sex for all of these other things that God has designed and this place of the human flourishing that God has in mind, it's clearly not working. It's causing untold pain to so many people. Listen to Catholic theologian Ronald Rollheiser. He says, the secular culture looks at the church and accuses it of being uptight and anti-erotic. Partly, this is true, but the church might well protest that much of its sexual reticence is rooted in the fact that it is one of the few voices still remaining who are challenging anyone towards sexual responsibility." As well, the church might also challenge any culture that claims to have found the key to healthy sexuality to step forward and show the evidence. No culture will take up that claim. See, while we as Christians can't claim perfection, not even nearly, One of the joys of my research stats from secular institutions do make it clear that people of committed faith are statistically having better sex and in quite a few of the demographics, they're having more of it. And I wanna know this, here's what I can't figure out. Why did nobody tell me this when I was growing up in the church? right? Why did nobody tell me this? Yes, I grew up in the context of the church, a red-blooded and randy young man wondering why God was out to spoil all my fun, this cosmic killjoy that didn't want me to have any sex. That is the messaging I got from the church. Now, many years later, I clearly see things differently and realize the message wasn't as clear and as kind as it should have been. And as Kate and I look to parents, our own children, as they come to a greater understanding of their own sexuality, we have to realize that our work is cut out for us. And we've got to counter this secular humanist worldview that is being beer funneled down their throats by everyone around them. And I'm so glad that I have a positive Christian perspective and understanding of sexuality, a a roadmap, a puzzle box to which we can build, to which we can look. An informed by God kind of view on these matters. See, the Christian worldview says human beings are made in the image of God. We have a soul and a will. We are more than coincidence, we are creation. Human nature is good, but it is also bent. We're not the way that we have been created to be. That our maleness and our femaleness is from God, and it, too, is good. He looked at it, he created it and he said, "It's good. Sex is way more than play for grown-ups. It's two becoming one flesh. It's the interpenetration. My kids love this. It's the interpenetration of not just two bodies, but two souls. You tie your souls together in sex. And that inside of marriage, that is a beautiful and safe place. And it's a beautiful and safe thing and it is worth waiting for. Love is so much more than an emotional or desire driven thing towards someone else. That's just lust. Love is a decision of the heart to delight in another and serve the needs of another, something the human heart so deeply longs for, which can be experienced in friendship and in the context of marriage. Marriage is a powerful covenant created by God and lived out before God for the purpose of belonging and partnership and sanctification and procreation and pleasure, Often the sanctification comes way before the pleasure, right? Singleness. Singleness is a gift from God. It is a force for good. A full and complete form of being with capacity and opportunity to be completely celebrated and enjoyed in the context of community. This is what God's word tells us about these things. This is the Christian worldview on these matters. And I believe that it is good and I commend it to you. Just as the father said when he created it, it is good. Over The next five weeks, what we're gonna do is we're gonna unpack each of these subjects more and more. And we're gonna ask, what does it look like for us to take our cue on sexuality from God's word. And we're gonna ask, what does it look like for, take our, for us to take our cue on sexuality from God's design? And ultimately, we're gonna call ourselves to submit our sexuality to his authority. Listen to this last verse as we close. Romans 12, verse one and two. To us as Christ followers here today, as we embark on this journey. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of of God's mercy, all that he has created, all that he has done, the amazing ways that he has reached out to us and shown us his love in view of his mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world or to secular humanism or to anyone else's opinion, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's pray together. God, today as we come to this place of embarking on this journey. God, it really is our heart and intent not to pick a fight with anyone. It really is our heart and intent to to know your hearts on these matters, to understand your will and your ways. And God, as we look to your word, and God, as we look to your design and your creation, God, I ask that you would give us that that kind of in view of your mercy type perspective, that we would realize that you are creator and we are created ones. And God, that we would not turn our backs on you, turn our backs on our creator and try and figure this out. God, we know that you in your creative order have plan and purpose. And so God, we pray that our hearts would ultimately come to that place of submission and alignment to all that you are doing, all that you call us to the truth of your word, the ways and the will that you have made known to us. And God, as we submit ourselves to you, even in some areas where we may not fully understand, may we choose to side with you rather than trying to figure it out on our own. Give us this great gift of your work within us in a way that it makes it easy for us to find ourselves humble before you and wanting to follow you. That is my great prayer for those in the room, God, where this subject matter just induces anxiety or fear or concern. For those that are in, in the secret place, God, holding on to, to addictions or, or forms of, of, of lies that they're holding on to or feelings of loneliness and feeling disconnected, God, may this community be one that creates a safe place for people to be set free, to process, to work things out. Jesus, I pray not only may we represent your truth, but may we be a community that represents your grace well. We hold to truth, that's the foundation, but may we represent your grace and your embracing arms of every single person as they come to you and they say, Lord, won't you be leader and Lord of my life? And as we submit our will and our ways to your perfect will and your ways, come and lead us on in these days we pray. In Jesus' wonderful name amen amen can I invite you to stand let's sing one last song before we go